1829, two men, George Wilson and James Porter, robbed a United States mail carrier. Both were subsequently captured and tried in the court of law. In May of 1830, both were found guilty of six charges, including robbery of the mail and, quote, putting the life of the driver in jeopardy. Wilson and Porter both received their sentences. Execution by hanging. It was to be carried out on July 2nd of that same year. Porter was executed on schedule, but Wilson was not. See, influential friends had pleaded for mercy to the President of the United States, Andrew Jackson, on his behalf. President Jackson issued a formal pardon, dropping all charges. Wilson would have to serve only a prison term of 20 years for his other crimes. Incredibly, however, George Wilson refused the pardon. An official report stated that Wilson chose to, quote, waive and decline any advantage or protection which might be supposed to arise from the pardon. He also stated that he had nothing to say and did not wish in any manner to avail himself in order to avoid sentence. This posed a problem, and so the case went before the United States Supreme Court in 1833, at which point the court determined The court cannot give the prisoner the benefit of the pardon unless he claims the benefit of it. It is a grant to him. It is his property, and he may accept it or not as he pleases. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, A pardon is an act of grace, proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the laws. But delivery is not completed without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And we have no power in a court to force it on him. Pardon is powerless unless it is received, depended upon, and trusted in. The victory that God gives to his people cannot be gained unless he is received, depended upon, and trusted in. In our text today, which is Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, we find Israel continuing their tests in the wilderness. They're being tested and trained, if you remember. And so since coming out of Egypt, they've learned what we've been our main idea the last couple times we've been together, that God provides for his people, not because they are faithful, but because he is faithful. You remember they were at Mara where the water was bitter and they grumbled and complained against the Lord. And in his kindness, he made the water sweet that they might drink of it. Then they got a little bit hangry in the wilderness of sin. They began complaining again. They were saying how great slavery was in Egypt, and God, instead of striking them and smiting them like I might have done, was gracious, and he provided for them manna in the morning, a little bit like Krispy Kreme that you could eat, and it would be nutritious for you, and quail at night. He met their needs. Still, they continued to complain at Rephidim, and God provided water. There's no water there, and God steps in, and they're ready to stone Moses. And Moses says, hey, they're about to kill me. Uh, What should I do? And God says, go and strike a rock on which I will stand. Moses does this, and water pours forth. The people are able to drink of the water, and they survive. God meets all of their needs, and we've also seen how how this works not only in Exodus, but also in the whole of the Bible. We talked about how Jesus went into the bitterness of suffering and into the bitterness of God's wrath so that we might know the sweetness of fellowship with him and his people. 
We also talked about how in John 6, Jesus tells us that he is the true bread of life, the one that comes down from heaven and gives life to his people. We also said that Jesus is the rock that was struck from whom living water pours forth. Remember, Paul gives us that interpretation. And so what what we've seen in Exodus is something we want to see in all of Scripture, that every verse of the Bible whispers the name of Christ. All of it testifies about who Jesus is. This morning we find ourselves still in the wilderness, still at Rephidim, and God will provide for his people once more, but in a new way. He's going to demonstrate that he not only provides for the needs of his people, but that he fights for his people, and he keeps them secure as they depend on him. That's our main idea this morning, that God fights for and gives victory to his people when they depend on his power. This morning we're going to learn that people who depend on God's power are people who listen, pray, and persevere. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that we can be your people because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you that we live not for our salvation, for that would be works righteousness, but from the truth of our salvation. Thank you that you have done it for us, that all we need to do is simply trust you. Father, we pray that as we read your word today, that you would make us people who receive. Help us to hear, help us to listen, to understand and to obey, not out of obligation, but out of our affection for you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. I think the first question we have to ask is, who are the people of Amalek? And uh, what we learn from the Bible and history is that the Amalekites traced their lineage all the way back to Esau and that they inhabited a part of the northern Sinai Peninsula. Um, Still, we have pretty limited information about them. Uh, But what we learn is, though they're a mysterious people, they are certainly desert dwellers. And so they would organize themselves into these nomadic groups. Uh, Balaam, in Numbers, calls them the first among the nations. And they would live, in part, by attacking other people groups and plundering their wealth. And so what we read that they're going to do here is the Amalekites are going to do what they do to people by plundering Israel. They're going to attack them. We learn in Deuteronomy that their attacks were both cowardly and savage. This is what Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19 say. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land of the Lord your God, the land that he has given you to possess as an inheritance, He will blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy, never forget the evil that Amalek does to you. Remember, 
Additionally, we're told in verse 14 of this chapter that God will blot out their memory. That's twice we're told that. But until then, in verse 16, Yahweh will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Both of these predictions will come true, and Amalek will become the proverbial thorn in Israel's side. And it happens rather quickly, too. Just two years later, after this battle in the wilderness, uh, when Israel reaches the border of the Promised Land, they encounter the Amalekites again. They're together with that group of really big people that they're all afraid of. And so instead of praying for victory, the Israelites become very fearful, and as a result, they uh, don't attack when they're supposed to, they do when they're not supposed to, and they end up spending the next 38 years in the wilderness, right? God says, this generation isn't going to get to go into the promised land because you failed, you're all going to pass away, the next generation gets to go in, save for Caleb and Joshua. And so they, they continue to be a thorn, not only there, but in Judges we come across them. If you remember in uh, Judges 3, they're part of that people group that had been brought together by King Agog, right? And, uh, and the, uh, was Ehud, I'm sorry, I'm back up. In Judges 3, uh, we have the story of uh, God raises up Ehud to stab that fat king who, who got together the Amalekites and a few others to defeat Israel and actually reigned over them for 18 years until Ehud was raised up and he snuck in. He was left-handed and, and very tricky is what that was telling us. And he stabbed the king and then God freed Israel as part of that judge's cycle. If you remember, the people would sin. They would eventually cry out for deliverance. God would deliver them. They'd be good for about two seconds and then they would sin again. Judgment would fall and repeat all the way through the book. Then they show up in 1 Samuel where they're finally defeated by King Saul, but he doesn't have the gumption, I guess, or the, the wisdom to obey God completely, and so he spares King Agag, that's what I was trying to say earlier, he spares King Agag of the Amalekites and keeps some of the spoils for himself. And this people actually is not blotted out completely until finally King David shows up in 1 Samuel 30 and finishes the job. So the point I'm making here, we are being introduced to a great enemy of God and of his people. And this enemy is actually made in the likeness of Egypt. See, just as Egypt had stood in Israel's way, so too do the people of Amalek. Since leaving Egypt, or leaving Egypt, Israel has dealt mostly with these internal issues. They've been grumbling and complaining, have an internal conflict. But now, all of a sudden, with the striking of the Amalekites, it becomes clear that they are dealing with an external enemy. The threat of the Amalekites helps sharpen the image of their true enemy. It unmasks their true adversary. The adversity they experience helps to galvanize them. We don't hear any reports of grumbling or complaining here, but instead we see immediate obedience to the words of Moses. I think difficulty has a way of reminding us about what is important and showing us just how silly most of our complaints and worries are. My hope for our church, any church, is that we would not need any kind of hardship to knock some sense into us. I wonder how often do we hear of churches bickering and fighting, grumbling and complaining over really ridiculous things. If you remember that list we shared a few months back now at the end of Titus, I listed some of those things that churches fight over from Tom Rainer. Uh, and we talked about churches splitting over music style and dress and meeting times, having fights about the color of filing cabinets, uh, which coffee to serve, carpet color, and whether or not to allow deviled eggs at the potluck, right? 
just really silly things. And what, what this shows us is when, when we lose focus on the gospel, we forget our mission and we begin foolishly focusing on ourselves and our kingdoms instead of God and his kingdom. Ultimately, we despise God's glory and are forfeiting our right to be called a church because we've taken to navel-gazing instead of beholding the, the risen Lord. Church, ask yourself, what are we corporately focused on? Church member, ask yourself, what are you focused on? Also think about how dumb Israel's complaints and worries look to us just thousands of years later, right? And then ask yourself, how will my concerns and my church's concerns look in eternity from now? I think it's time that we woke up and brought the image of our real enemy into focus. Yes, our own sinfulness threatens us from within, but the real enemy of the church comes from without. Friends, we are at war. Not with one another or the culture or, or the guy who cuts you off in traffic or the neighbor you don't like or even those who are cutting off the heads of Christians overseas. We're not at war with them. We are at war with Satan and demons and the structures of evil. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 6.12 when he writes this, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Friends, we need to realize the true identity of our real enemy. Oh, it's not one another. It's not flesh and blood. It's the evil one and his hosts. My hope is that we would become sober to this spiritual reality and stop sleepwalking through life as materialists. Pray that we would not be numb to the truth that there is a war being waged in our souls and around us as a people. My prayer is, is that if we as a church or as individuals uh, somehow will allow ourselves to become complainers or if we have already done so, that God would help us to quit the, the foolish navel-gazing and raise our eyes back to the cross then he would even send some kind of hardship or suffering into our lives to reorient us towards the gospel. Because the gospel mission is eternally more significant than anything else. It's more important, it's more significant than your comfort, than your career, than your dreams, or even your family. My prayer is that God would crush our idols and put flesh on our dry bones, that he would bring to us revival, a real, genuine, white-hot passion to proclaim Christ to the nations, to proclaim that truth about Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross and his victorious resurrection. I think we too easily get distracted by these silly things and forget that there are men and women in our community, that are dying and going to a Christless eternity where they will endure 
the wrath of God, the just wrath of God forever. Friends, I pray that we would become passionate about sharing the gospel so that they might hear and believe and be saved. The prayer is that the Father would change our hearts so that we would happily cast off frivolous things that distract us and keep us from engaging the enemy. Make no mistake. You are at war whether you have it or not. Do not get distracted. Focus on the mission. Listen to God's voice. Listen as the people of Israel do here. And give Him immediate obedience. There's a, a scene in Lord of the Rings, and I can't remember all the details of it, but basically, Ar- I'm going to remember to say his name wrong. Aragorn is before the king, and the king is basically saying, I don't want to go to war. I, I don't want to have it. And, and he says to him, he responds and says, open war is upon you whether you would have it or not. And the same is true of us. We are at a war whether we would have it or not. Israel is wandering through the wilderness here, and all of a sudden they are attacked by the enemy, and it becomes clear that they are at war. I want to say likewise, even though you can't see physically the hosts of evil, they are indeed attacking you daily. And you must make war against them. And this is exactly what what Joshua does. He makes war by listening to what God instructs the people to do through Moses. Uh, To be honest, I don't know that I would have listened to Moses in Joshua's position. Look at verse 9 again. As Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Now if I'm Joshua, I'm going, wait, 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 wait. Let me get this straight. You want me to get some guys that have never been in battle before. Go into this valley and fight while you go up on top of a mountain and just hang out. Right? Like, that you're, you're just going to chill up there. I don't know that I would have obeyed right away. But Joshua here, he listens and obeys. He believes Moses, and he depends on God's power as evidenced by his willingness to go into the valley and fight. Likewise, Moses believes God and depends on his power as evidenced by his going up onto the hill to pray. We read in verse 11, While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek with his army with the sword. Moses' actions demonstrate that he and the people are completely reliant upon Yahweh for the victory. He recognizes that they have no chance if God does not fight for them. And I think Moses' reliance upon the power of God is made clear to us in this passage. Whether or not, though, he's been praying is is disputed um, because the text doesn't actually employ the word prayer there. Uh, But I agree with most commentators and Dr. Morita that we have good reasons to believe Moses is in prayer. The first of which is that Moses lifted up his hands, appealing to God to show his power. Keel and Delich corroborate this point, writing, The lifting up of the hands has been regarded almost with unvarying unanimity. Unanimity. I can't say this word anymore. It's unanimous among people that comment on it. By the Targumists, the rabbis, fathers, reformers, and nearly all the modern commentators. 
as a sign or attitude of prayer. We've also seen in Moses' own life already that he raises his hands in prayer. If you look at Exodus 9, 29, you would read that Moses said to Pharaoh, when I have left the city, I will extend my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, no more hail so that you may know the earth belongs to Yahweh. We see the raising of hands as an expression of prayer and praise throughout the Psalms. Psalm 63, verse 4. I will praise you as long as I live. At your name I will lift up my hands. Psalm 141, verse 2. May my prayer be set before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening offering. Paul employs the concept in 1 Timothy 2, 8, saying, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Again, the text may not say prayer, but Moses is clearly praying. He's clearly expressing his dependence upon God and making intercession for the people. One of the things that was fun for me this week as I was thinking through whether or not Moses was, was praying here, whether or not I was convinced, is uh, I talked to one of my friends, Nathaniel, and I thought what he said was brilliant. He, he said, we need to exercise caution against thinking of prayer as simply having something to say to God. And instead, expand the definition to allow for oftentimes not having any idea what to say beyond simply, we need you to show up or even groaning. Indeed, we need to expand our idea of prayer to include even the listening for God's voice in his word. If you remember in Romans 8, 23, this idea of groaning before the Lord in prayer uh, is made evident to us. We ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope, Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. Prayer is more than just having something to say to God. It's an expression of dependence upon him, of waiting on him. I wonder, do you wait in prayer? you seek to hear what God might say to you through the reading and meditating on his word. Another reason we have to understand Moses as being in prayer here is that uh, the idea of prayer seems to be confirmed in verse 16, Uh, and I like the way the ESV renders this. It says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. We know that this idea of uh, coming before the throne of the Lord is a way of speaking of prayer elsewhere throughout the scriptures. And as Christians, we know that we're only able to go before the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time because of the work of Jesus. I mean, how great a privilege is prayer. I mean, what a marvelous way to show our dependence upon God's word. What a wonderful way for him to show us his glory. And that's exactly what's going on during the battle. Moses is showing the people's belief and dependence on God, and in response, God is showing the people his glory by fighting for and giving them victory. I think one of the most striking things about this text is how little the battle is actually referred to, right? We see the result of the battle, that Joshua wins, but we don't have any details. What we have details of is Moses on this hill. And I think this shows us that the hill is where this battle is truly won. Douglas Stewart notes, It's important that the Israelites understand unmistakably 
that the only reason they could win against the Amalekites was that God was fighting for them, giving them the victory. And how they knew that was that Moses' hands remained above his head. They were depending upon the Lord for the power. It is paramount for us also to understand that in our struggle against the enterprise of evil, we will only be successful insofar as we are dependent upon God. We're only going to triumph in those daily battles against sin if we resolve to rely on the Holy Spirit and make war through prayer. Again, Paul tells us about this in Ephesians 6. He says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. And here's the the crux of this passage. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with every prayer and request, and stay alert in this with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Paul's telling us there is a war between the children of light and the powers of darkness, and the church's spiritual warfare is real. And this, it's enumerated for us here in Ephesians and elsewhere in the New Testament. And the way that we wage that war is through prayer. I mean, indeed, the seed of Eve has crushed the head of the serpent and freed us from sin's penalty and sin's power. But you know, you still struggle with sin, that the presence of sin is still very much here on this earth right now, and it will be until Christ returns to vanquish all of it. And so as we wait, we fight this deceptive enemy who crouches at our doors, waiting to devour us. Friends, my my prayer is that we would not be naive. I mean, I implore you, do not be naive. The evil one and his host exists. And they triumph on two counts when they convince you that they do not exist. First, they cause you to refuse to believe what God has said about himself and about his world. So you disbelieve the word of God. Secondly, they tempt you ever so slowly until you are crushed and jaws of defeat. Satan and demons do uh, their best work, like uh, there's this turtle I read about somehow. Uh, It's called an alligator snapping turtle, right? The biggest turtle in the United States. And and how this this thing works is it has a tongue that looks like a worm. And so what it does is it sits there and it opens its mouth, and it wiggles its tongue like a worm, And the fish, they don't know any better. They're ignorant. They're like, that worm looks delicious. I'm about to chow down on this thing. And and they get in there, and they start nibbling away. And then all at once, once the fish takes the bait, the jaws of death snap shut on them. Their ignorance leads to their death. Friends, so too will yours if you refuse to daily put on the divine armor and fight with unmitigated dependence on God through prayer. You know, at the end of the day, people always say the power of prayer. Uh, You know, the power of prayer is not the prayer itself, right? 
power of prayer is not the prayer itself, but the power of God. Prayer is the means by which we receive the power of God. When you pray, you are like Moses, imploring God to fight for you. And you are like Joshua, wielding the sword against the enemy. Friend, don't get caught by the alligator snapping turtle, right? You need to pick up the sword and fight. You need to pray. Moses' intercession for the people through prayer is how they experience the blessing of God. He gives them both his power and the triumph in the battle. Furthermore, he wants to ensure his people do not forget. Look at verse 14. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it. The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne, or my hand is upon his throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, one of the things this section as a whole does for us, and especially here, is it shows us that Joshua is kind of a big deal. It shows us that he's going to be the successor to Moses. He's the one that they're writing this stuff down for. Also, they don't really tell us who Joshua is. They just expect us to know. So the original readers, it's assumed, would have known who Joshua is because he is an important figure. He's going to replace Moses. Still, though, verse 14 is a little weird, right? Write this down so that Joshua remembers and recite it to him. Uh, some of you probably have friends from high school uh, that were really good at athletics, and they can recall for you uh, the amount of time on the clock and what play it was uh, in football and recount you the whole events of everything that happened. They can tell you about the glory days at the drop of a hat. That's not something they're going to forget. In fact, I actually had a, a, a friend of mine that I've known for years now uh, tell me a glory days type story recently, and I couldn't believe he hadn't told me already. Uh, but basically, the story goes like this. They lived in, him and another friend of his lived in Philadelphia at the time. They scored some tickets to a Philadelphia 76ers practice. So it's just a, a few people, and they have like the court roped off. And it's at the time when uh, Dr. Julius Irving uh, played for the 76ers along with Maurice Cheeks. And so he says the whole time his buddy is just trash-talking Dr. J. So yeah, me, me and this guy, we can take you. Two on two, two on two. And he says, eventually, uh, Dr. J gets fed up with this, and he comes right over to him, and he grabs the rope, doesn't say anything, he just picks it up and, and, and points them to come in. And so they walk under the, the, the rope, and at the end of the day, the story is they, they got to play two on two against pretty legendary basketball players in Dr. J and Mo Cheeks. And I said, how on earth have you not told me this story before? I mean, had this happened to me, it would be in my introduction, right, before my name. Hey, I played, I played basketball with Dr. J and Mo Cheeks, and my name is Justin, right? It's a, you don't have to remind me about that. And so one wonders if, if Joshua would need reminded about the time he took a group of ragtag slaves from Egypt and went into battle against the Amalekites and was victorious. I don't think anybody would need to remind him of that. And so we ask the question, why write it down? I think the answer is this. Because God knew that the road ahead for the Israelites would not be all butterflies, kitty cats, and roses. He knew it would be very difficult. They would face many dangerous enemies that would seem bigger and stronger than them. And God wanted to remind them that they gained this victory, and any victory they ever gained was not because of their own military prowess, but because of him, Yahweh, 
the divine warrior who triumphs over the enemies of his people. Israel's success comes only from their dependence on God and his power. They must never forget that. The scroll on which these events are recorded is to be a memorial or a reminder of God's power to bring victory, that he was able to bring victory in the past, and that also he's able to bring victory in the future. And we do this with things that we remember in our own culture, right? It's Memorial Day weekend. We look back and, and remember those who fought on our behalf, that we might have freedom. I think likewise, this does that, but it does more than that. It's a, it's, it's a promise of God's future faithfulness to the nation of Israel. He's given deliverance in the past. He's given victory in the past, and he will bring victory in the future as far as, as long as his people depend upon him. Verse 15 also tells us that Moses built an altar. He did this to remind the people of God's might and also to give thanks and praise to God. He he actually names the altar, the Lord is my banner. And Douglas Stewart comments, A banner is a military standard, a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia and raised on a pole. Soldiers always look to their banner. It establishes their identity, helps them know who they are, On the battlefield, it also helps them keep their bearings and gives them courage and hope. Friends, the Lord is not only Israel's banner, but our own. Jesus is the one to whom we look to establish our identity. He alone can help us know and become our true selves. Jesus is the one who in our struggles helps us to keep our bearings and gives us courage and hope. Friends, don't miss the fact that this text, every Old Testament text, every text of Scripture is for you. Israel's story is our story. They had been redeemed, and they were on their way to the promised land, just like us. We've been redeemed, and we're on our way to the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But on the way, they faced enemies, and so too will we, so too do we. And we do well to learn a lesson from Israel. One of the things that they realize at this point is that God will defeat any and every foe for them if they will listen to his voice, pray for his power, and persevere in their dependence upon him. Friends, Jesus Christ has fought for and given the eternal victory to you. Despite your failure to listen to God's voice instead of your own heart, despite your wickedness, Jesus lives and died so that you might die to self and live in him. You can have your greatest need met. Peace with God and his people. If you will only receive his power. Do consider how Israel received the power of God for victory. First, a mediator. Moses interceded for them. Moses points us to the ultimate intercessor, Jesus Christ, whoever lives and pleads for us. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Jesus is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. He doesn't need people at his right and his left holding his hands up. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he lives and pleads for us. He is our intercessor. He is the true and better Moses, who again brings victory to us with his arms outstretched upon a hill where he gives up his life. Jesus is also a greater warrior than Joshua. 
He defeated our ultimate enemy, death. When he, as the old hymn puts it, was bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. He rose from the dead and defeated death. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-21 tells us, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. In verse 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, all of us deserve death, just like George Wilson did. All of us can be pardoned for our sins if we trust in Jesus Christ who took the wrath we deserve as our substitute. Jesus' death in the place of sinners and his resurrection uniquely qualify him alone with the power to pardon sin. But as we discussed earlier, pardon is powerless unless it is received, depended upon, and trusted in. Non-Christian, will you receive a pardon for your sins by trusting in Jesus? Or will you, like George Wilson, refuse grace and remain justly condemned? A few closing words of uh, application. First, uh, Christian, God has given the world two memorials or two primary reminders of the wondrous work of Christ. The first is his word, and the second is you. You and the scriptures are the means by which God has determined to tell the greatest of all stories, the gospel. Church, we are those who should have the word of God in our mouths. We've been charged with making disciples of all nations, and so we must resolve to dedicate ourselves to this task by consistently putting the word of God before ourselves, before our children, before our neighbors, and before our enemies. And we're no better than those that we would think of as our enemies. We're, we're no different than the group overseas that's cutting off the heads of our family members. But for the grace of God, For when we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. That's why Jesus came in the world, so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And we believe not because we're better or because we have some kind of mysterious insight, but because God has done a work in us. Pray for your enemies. Take this glorious truth to them. God was able to save Saul of Tarsus, who at the time could have been called Saul of Isis. He saved him, and he used him to be a pillar in the Christian church. Who have you dismissed as beyond the grace of God that you might share the good news with? Who might God want to save through your ministry, through your faithful proclamation of his word? Second, let me encourage you to put altars of thanksgiving in your life to remind you of God's presence and his faithfulness. I want to encourage you to erect towers of granite in your mind of God's accomplishments, to reserve many rooms in your memory palace for the works of Jesus in your life. Uh, some of my own include uh, the gift of loyal friends. I've been really blessed with a great uh, amount of friendships throughout my life from the time I was young. 
I also think of the Lord sustaining me through college and, and seminary and, and getting me through my first year of marriage, right? Chelsea had a lot to endure there. Happy that he gave her patience. I think sovereignly bringing Chelsea and I here to, to serve as your pastor is one of those uh, rooms in my memory palace that I look to. God has brought us here. He do, he's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. I think one of the most emotional ones for me, and I didn't think I was going to get this emotional, but it just happened, <clears throat> was that uh, using you all to uh, comfort and carry my family when we lost uh, a child um, unborn. Uh, man, that was awesome that God put you in our lives to share that burden with us. I mean, that, what a fulfillment of Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. And look at that, that suffering and go, this is a, a tower of granite. God has put wonderful people in our lives. He's always working for our good, even in the midst of suffering. How awesome is he? There are many more I could go on all day, but I won't do that. Some of you like to go to lunch after. But I hope that those get you started and help you to think of some of your own towers of granite that you can put in your mind to remember God's faithfulness. Remember his faithfulness in the past and to delight in what he will do in your future. The point I'm making is do not forget the gospel. Don't forget God's faithfulness. Don't forget the beautiful truth that God fights for and gives victory to his people when they depend on his power. My prayer is that you would depend on him this morning. That you indeed would remember that wonderful pardon you've received from Jesus Christ who stood and experienced death in your place so that you don't have to experience the eternal wrath of God, but instead get to experience eternal fellowship with God when you trust in him and depend on his power. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when we are struggling in the battle against our sins, against those daily desires to worry and complain, to fret. Please remind us of your past faithfulness. Remind us that the worst case scenario of our life is already true, that we were crucified with Christ. Remind us that the best case scenario for our life is also true, that we've been united to him in his resurrection and that it's no longer we who live, but he who lives in us. Father, remind us to think of the eternity that lies before us and to work backwards from that. Help us in our daily lives to try and live in light of that which is coming, that we might give a foretaste of heaven to ourselves and to our neighbors. Father, we thank you for the foretaste of heaven we have even now as we gather together to listen to your word, sing songs about your glory and your mercy. You are so good to us. Help us to never forget your faithfulness. We pray in the faithful one's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.